Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Strahda Dundalk and Cavan. Our service departments are open with all HSC and government guidelines in place to keep you and our staff safe. Sales are click and deliver only through our website, blackstonemotors.ie. Stay safe from Blackstone Motors. Get the snow ploughs out. Get the snow ploughs out quickly. There's about uh, five centimetres of snow on the ground. Will we manage? How will we get on? The country will shut down. They're only dealing with ten foot of snow in Moscow, six foot in Sweden. All this panic, Monday and Tuesday, oh, woe be tied, we're going to be ruined, we won't be able to do anything with the snow. There you are, a few little flurries here and there, giving a little Christmassy feel to the place, but nothing too much to worry about yet. I will say it again, Thursday could be the day, Thursday could be the day we'll uh, get the wee bit of snow into Friday. And then I was just looking, we're going to get a little warmer towards the weekend, that's your weather forecast, at, uh, coming up to half past one this Tuesday afternoon. Welcome to the show, great to have you with us. Oh, we're all or nothing, aren't we all? or nothing there you go but uh, anyway stay safe mind the paths they might be a little bit slippy but enjoy the cold wrap up well that east wind oh there's no joy in an east wind that's for sure anyway we'll try to warm the cockles of your heart over the next couple of hours or so today is safe internet day we have our tech expert Declan Bailey with us a little later on in the show I'll be chatting to Dr Ian Coonhan I met Ian first I was just looking back on the 16th of March in 2020. I went down to Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, when you could go down still, just about, and interviewed himself and three other specialists. And I remember it well, the interview, I really do, because at that stage, you know, we weren't sure what we were heading into with COVID. But I remember on that day them telling me, there's a tsunami on the way and they weren't wrong. But Dr Ian Cunahan is with us as part of our Keeping Well in Your Community Part 4 series and he's going to talk to us today about the vaccination rollout. Also on the show today, we are marking a centenary since 1921, a pivotal year here in Ireland. Sean Collins, our historian, is with us today to talk about a major incident in the northeast uh, two men murdered in cold blood but it was a bloody month february just not in these parts all over the country sean will be reflecting with us just after two on the show today and of course i'll be continuing the dusty springfield story with uh, one of her classic songs if you want to get in touch with us on the show the numbers the usual numbers don't forget them 086 1800 658 if you want to join in the conversation 086 1800 658 whatsapp or text 
text me or you can call in on 1850-715-958. We start on Tuesday like we have for some time. I say hello again to Professor Paul Moyna. Hello, Paul. Good afternoon, Jerry. Great to have you with us on the show again. Just uh, Ian is coming up, Dr. Ian Coonhan, later on. God, Paul, it's hard to believe that it's almost a year, you know what I mean? A month short of a year since we were, you know, trying to, to uh, really assess what would happen. Just to come uh, back to today and, and uh, a week since we spoke last, would you say steady progress, hospitalisations down 60% since the recent peak? There's talk that uh, we'll see cases down to 200 to 400 uh, by the end of this week or into next week what's your feeling yeah i think uh, we've made really good progress. If, if you recall we were at like seriously high numbers you know up into the many thousands i think seven eight thousand um and now we're, we're significantly down on that so in, in, it went up very rapidly but we've done a really good job in terms of bringing the numbers down quite quickly now probably over the last week the, the, the numbers and the decrease in numbers they're probably proven to be a little bit stubborn and they're sort of plateauing uh, a little bit uh, now but still I think we've made really good progress and obviously with the vaccination coming on stream that should help so yeah I think I think we're certainly move- certainly moving in, in the right direction. Um, the variants were you know were, I suppose it strikes fear into people with the variants when you hear South Africa, Brazil, a mutation of the Kent variant in the UK as well. I take it like just to say to listeners again a bit of reassurance this is what happens. Yeah, this is what happens in terms of viruses. As viruses replicate, each time they replicate, they produce copies of themselves. Every now and again, there is a mistake, uh, and that's called a mutation. And if a mutation damages the virus, you no longer see it because the virus doesn't survive. But occasionally, you can get mutations of the virus that gives an advantage to the virus. That can be an advantage in terms of you know replication and surviving and multiplying within uh, the hosted person. Or it could be, you know, if you're... Uh, vaccinating, vaccinating very uh, heavily, that maybe there are mutations that gives a selective advantage against the vaccine. So we've got a number of variants now. We've actually had thousands and thousands of variants. A few of them have received a lot of attention over the last number of weeks. The UK one, obviously, first before Christmas, it seems to be very good at transmitting. And certainly the rates of transmission seems to be much higher than the variants we had previously. And now the UK one, or the one that was first identified in the UK, that variant, that's the predominant one uh, that we have here uh, in this country. Uh, so certainly that transmits better. Thankfully, it doesn't seem to be, uh, it doesn't seem to escape the vaccine. The vaccine seems to be very effective in that. There's some discussion around the variant that was first identified in South Africa in terms of can it potentially evade the vaccine? Again, and some countries in South Africa, for example, have stopped using, for example, the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, there's early data suggesting that maybe that vaccine doesn't work well against the South African variant. But again, look at that data. It's still very early. The numbers are very, very small. So we await clarification on that. There is a suggestion that when, when we produce an immune response in response to the vaccine and we produce antibodies and neutralizing antibodies with the South African variant, we probably need more of those antibodies. And for that reason, some of the manufacturers of the vaccines like Moderna are proposing maybe to give maybe a second booster, so it'll be a third administration to increase the amount of antibodies to overcome that. So I still think the vaccines are really, really effective. Obviously, it's within the capabilities of these companies to re-engineer vaccines and to tailor them specifically against those variants. And we may see that with time. But but it is, as you said, Jerry, there at the start of the question, 
it is what happens with viruses. They mutate, they evolve, and obviously we have to keep pace with that in terms of our vaccine design and development. I'm uh, an annual recipient of the flu vaccine, never miss it, to be honest. And, you know, each year uh, there's different aspects to that. They look at a certain number that might protect against four that have been elsewhere in the world. Will it be a similar thing going forward? Like, we don't know yet how long vaccines will last, but if it is to be an annual thing, is that sort of the the way it will operate, similar to the way the flu is tweaked each year? Possibly, but probably for different reasons. So if you look at the flu, the flu vaccine tends to change from year to year because the flu strains differ from year to year. And unlike the coronavirus, the coronavirus is sort of like a single piece of uh, genetic material, this mm. RNA that makes up and encodes for the virus. But with the flu, you can get recomb- a process known as recombination where you get a mixing of these strains. And for the development of the vaccine each year, there's sort of, to the degree, there's prediction and there's modelling trying to guess in terms of which strains the vaccine should be uh, designed uh, with in mind. Um, so with the coronavirus, the coronavirus doesn't really recombine, but it can mutate. Uh, I think vaccines would probably end up being quite effective for some time based on the fact that the coronaviruses, they do change, they do, do mutate, but are relatively low rates. But what we don't know, we don't know how long immunity lasts for, we don't know how long immunity lasts for with natural infection. Really promising reports showing that we at least get protection for eight, nine months and probably longer. It's just that's the longest we can look out with now with the studies uh, so far. But we don't know beyond that. And then how long will the vaccine, how long will that be efficacious for, how long will that protect us for? But again, I would think that it would mirror what we see with natural infection. So, so far, it seems to be behaving as a very nasty virus, but it seems to be behaving in a pretty predictable manner, I would say, in terms of for one of these respiratory viruses. But we could have a situation where, due to mutations, due to new variants, it wouldn't be unusual or unexpected to think that the companies would retailer their vaccines and that some of the boosters down the road you may get may not be the same as the first generation vaccine. But that's entirely normal in, in terms of how vaccines evolve over time and how the design changes over time so that they're tailored against the specific variant or the specific virus that is prevalent at that time. I see on Taoiseach Michal Martin uh, this morning going into a cabinet meeting saying that restrictions will be slow to ease. The priority, of course, is schools and construction. But beyond that, he's not saying much at all. Now, this uh, lockdown taking us up to the 5th of March, but I take it we're going to hear news before that on what plans they have, especially around education and and building construction. But, you know, it's not looking like uh, we're going to be able to take the foot from the pedal quickly, Paul. I think before Christmas, the numbers went up, you know, very, very rapidly and to a very high level. And I think that put, that was a shock to the system. I don't think, I think there was an expectation as restrictions were lifted before Christmas that the numbers would increase. I think few of any, some said it, it should have been, it was predictable, I'm not so sure. And I think that created quite a shock. And as a result, as a result I think, you know, in terms of government, cabinet, I think I'm probably going to be very cautious in terms of lifting the restrictions now. But I think at some stage we do have to look at that. On top of the priority, you mentioned that just there now, Jerry, the, the opening of the schools. I think that has to take a priority at the expense of everything else. So I think we need to look at that. And uh, as we approach the 6th of March, yeah, there will be a lot of discussion in terms of uh, 
which restrictions are lifted and, you know, in what sequence and what is prioritised. But like, no doubt the schools will be prioritised and then maybe other um, activities. You mentioned construction being one of them. So certainly, I think it probably will be a slow process. But again, I'd be more hopeful as we get into this spring, late spring, early summer especially, hopefully there will be a, a natural waning of the virus and that will help us as well and give us a real opportunity then over the summer months to roll out the vaccination programme and hopefully get that everybody who's eligible and would like a vaccine that we really need to have that in place by next September, October. That's sort of the time frame I'm looking at in terms of trying to get back to some degree of normality, which I think we will. I think we will get back to normality, but it, it will be a slow process. But it's always a balance. It's always a balance. We can't stay shut down forever. Mm. It's trying to open in a very prudent manner and minimising risk whilst also balancing uh, what it's costing us while, while we're locked down. People, you know, uh, are doing the very best and the majority are and congratulate everybody for that. And it really is appreciated uh, by everyone in the health service who are right on the front line dealing with this and know the extent of the pressure that's on there. I spoke to Patrick Riley in Sweden yesterday. He's been a regular with us like yourself from Sweden. They've been the outlier. They've gone a different route. They haven't really closed down. But just speaking to him yesterday... Uh, twice the number of people have died in Sweden compared to Ireland. So, you know, Paul, I know people say, ah, look, come on, it's too tough, it's too restrictive. But uh, when you compare sort of, you know, Sweden with Ireland, it looks like the road we've gone has saved lives. Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, again, it comes down to a balance. I think in terms of you look at other countries, I think comparisons are really, really difficult. Some people will point to certain countries to suit a particular narrative. I think it's just I think it's just a very difficult virus to control. I think in individual countries there are individual features, individual characteristics um, that actually may give rise to, you know, a very high rate of transmission, lower rate of transmission. With respect to Sweden, obviously they didn't impose the lockdowns, it was more self regulated. I would say in some ways it was self regulated. People did take, you know, and they did adhere, you know, and impose their own social distancing. There was certainly restrictions in terms of the size of congregations that could get together. So it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was a free-for-all. I think there was this uh, sense of good citizenship. And But certainly when you look at the death rate arising from Sweden, it is significantly higher than our others, but probably on average, you know, across Europe. So... I think it's it's difficult. I don't necessarily like making these comparisons between individual countries because other people would then choose look at countries like Peru, for example, that impose the most the strictest lockdowns possible. Yet their death rates are probably the highest in the in the world, or amongst the highest in the world. So it's very very difficult, Jerry, to make these comparisons. And again, you can pick your country that suits the argument that you're trying to make. I, I, it's just a very difficult virus control and there are many parameters many characteristics of a particular country that determines you know how widely spread it is and how quickly it transmits the uh, work goes on the scientists are right on this you're in touch with a lot of people in the field who are out there watching every move of this it's been a tremendous achievement to get the uh, vaccines out so quickly but uh, the challenges continue paul but there still is this massive focus in the world on getting the vaccinations uh, done worldwide but research into this whole area continues full pace 
Ah, yeah, the vaccines, are, the vaccine and the vaccination programmes, they are the way that's going to get us out of this. There's, there's no doubt about that. I think the progress that has been made over the last year is just uh, unprecedented. And the speed at which these developments have been made. And because of such a focus on COVID-19, even in terms of learning about the disease, within such a short time period, again, we know a lot. There's still a lot that we don't know. There's still a lot of sort of, you know, confusion and uncertainty in terms of, you know, why some people can get it to remain, to have infected, to remain asymptomatic, not even aware of being infected. Others get the infection, get quite sick, but recover very well. Others then get very severely ill, end up in ICU, and some sadly die. And, and that whole sort of diversity of how individuals can respond in very different ways to the same virus, we're beginning to get a handle on that. But again, more research is required on that. I think it'll benefit as, as well if you look further down the line, you know, and up until this appeared, some in the field would have, you know, warned against maybe the arrival of a pandemic. And probably most governments paid lip service, to be, to be honest. We may be more aware now, maybe more prepared, and to begin to look at, you know, what possibly could be the next pandemic. Is it another virus? Is it related to, it could be bacteria related to antibiotic resistance. But certainly in terms of science and research and the funding of that, I think what it has told us that uh, the investment in research is really, really valuable. We've seen over the last 12 months how quickly, you know, we've ended up generating these uh, vaccines. But that was based on really good science, really good research over probably the last 10 years or so. The fundamentals so that when this problem arose, the technology was already there to employ. And you've seen the success of that. So obviously I'm a big fan of involved in research, but I'm a big fan, obviously, of basic research, basic science. And that, that should be heavily funded because it does help enormously, not only in terms of specific problems, but societally and, and for some of the major challenges that face us today. Just uh, one more point before you go, and it's one uh, that uh, listeners are particularly keen on hearing and hearing your opinion on. I come back to it again because I've just got another message about it to ask you this. Looking at travel, you know, we can see what's going on. Michael O'Leary wants the skies opened up and he wants uh, Neffet and everyone else to do his bidding. Uh, the Neffet people are saying, well, to be honest with you, I wouldn't be travelling for the foreseeable future. What's your opinion? I think if you look at the countries and going back to comparing, you know, countries and countries that have done really well in terms of managing the pandemic and stopping really large outbreaks. So, you know, you look at countries like New Zealand, like Australia, they have a number of, in terms of how they responded, they're characterised by having moved really quickly and really very strongly uh, immediately. And one of the one of the features associated with the, that response was really to seal their borders. And that's essentially what you have to do so that before the outbreaks become very, very prominent, seal the borders so that when you control the transmission within the country, you're not introducing any new infection. Um, I think it's more difficult when the outbreaks and the outbreaks are more extensive. I think it's more difficult when the numbers are high. The contribution that travel makes to the transmission is relatively low. Travel becomes more important when we begin to get the numbers down. But then you're faced with this conundrum. And I think in order for travel to be effective, it almost has to be complete. And you almost have to 
you have to feel the entire country. Uh, so if you if you have very strong restrictions, you know, around Dublin ports, for example, but the land border where there can still be travel between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, that that makes it very difficult because essentially you have a leaky system then. That is a conundrum that for many reasons, some of them political, it just makes it a very, very difficult problem to solve. Now, obviously, yes, you know, travel should be limited to that. That is only essential. And I know some people, yes, are travelling for non-essential purposes and that needs to be limited. Uh, But in terms of, you know, restricting transmission, more importantly, probably limiting the importation of some of these variants. But worryingly, even some of the South African variants have already been identified here. So it's almost that, in my view, we're almost coming too late to the game on this. Um, and if it is going to be introduced, in order for that to be effective, it, it almost has to be complete. You, you have to see the entire country or have a uniform approach between the North and the South. And again, that requires a lot of obviously political uh, cooperation. Whether that's going to happen or not, I'm not, I'm not so sure. And then finally, Jerry, if quarantine is imposed, or in those countries that have imposed very, very strict quarantine, like New Zealand and Australia, the ultimate question is, when are you going to open up again? Because what I see with this virus is, in my view, there are only two possibilities with this virus. One is that the virus is eradicated. Is that going to happen? I think if you look at the history of viruses, it's very, very unlikely the reason why I say that is we've only ever eradicated one virus, smallpox. And the reason being that we had a very good vaccine. It didn't transmit asymptomatically. When you had smallpox, you knew it was very clear. So you could easily isolate people before they could infect people. And thirdly, it's a human virus. It wasn't in animals. Whereas with the coronavirus, yes, we have a good vaccine, actually really good uh, vaccines. But... It transmits asymptomatically, pre-symptomatically, and also there's an animal reservoir. So it's probably not going to, we're probably not going to be able to eradicate it. And then the other possibility is that it becomes endemic. It stays with us, and probably we will get to the stage where we will have outbreaks, most likely in the winter months. But with that combination of natural infection and vaccination, there will be some outbreaks. But you know, there will be seasonal, and they'll be greatly reduced in terms of numbers. But coming back to the quarantine then, if it becomes endemic, when do you open up the country again? That's a question that every country has to face up to. And it's a difficult question, but getting sort of to the stage of whether it be zero COVID, zero tolerance, I'm not sure how that's going to work out if we end up in a situation where the virus becomes endemic. So, you know, challenges, a lot of questions there to be answered, a lot of discussion to take place Jerry. so so it's a complex one It certainly is, Uh, Paul as usual thank you so much for joining me on the show today, always appreciate uh, your expert words, thanks a million You're very welcome Jerry. Thank you that's Professor Paul Miner there, Head of the Department of Biology and Director of the Human Health Research Institute at Maynooth University Look I said it before here I'm trying to go travelling myself but I won't be for the foreseeable future, I think it's best not to, just to sit tight and do the very best we can for the foreseeable and as well as that we are going to countries uh, in, in Europe where 
you're not sure what, what the situation is there either. You know what I mean? If you got ill when you were out there, if you bring something back with you, that's just my logic on the situation. And boy, do I want to go again. You're at Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Stay with us. So that a uh, couple of stories in the newspapers today. You know, I do a uh, bit of fishing myself. I enjoyed the angling, mostly fresh water. But on our beaches here in the northeast in Mornington in County Mead, there was a strange fish found. I was looking at the picture. It's a dogfish, actually. It's a dogfish. They're quite common in the Irish Sea. And actually, if you're fishing the, the beach for perhaps cod or other species like that, they're a bloody nuisance. Because they'll take your bait when you catch them. They take them off and just let them back in. But obviously one of them was washed up on the shore. Unusual, I'd say, for anyone walking along to see them. But if you're a fisherman, an angler, you'll know what they're about. And they are actually quite common. And a dolphin. Those are dolphin. That's a bit of an unusual one, isn't it? A dolphin washed up in Termin There you are, a dolphin along the... Uh, east coast here they are there of course but to see them uh, washed up and it's hardly fungi is it is it fungi oh lord i'm only half the thinking of that could it be fungi washed up in terrible termin no it's lovely i love termin it's a beautiful beautiful place um i wonder now he's gone missing you know he's been missing he hasn't been seen maybe decided to take a trip around the coast and checked out when he came up along this direction who knows is it fungi there you are but that never dawned on anybody when they were doing the story. Sure, there's that many dolphins in the sea. Be a long shot, wouldn't it? Anyway, dolphin on Termin Feckin Beach discovered in recent days as well. Ah, oh, you'll get that at times. And then an east wind blowing in hard takes in any fish who uh, lose their lives. They're normally, you know, the way the uh, cycle of nature works. They're usually fodder or food for some other creature in the sea. But there you have it. They've uh, been washed up on our shores. Little news stories in today's papers. And uh, one other thing to mention to you. If you're watching television tonight and not watching Manchester United and West Ham in the Cup on the BBC, on Virgin One, I'm really enjoying this. Gordon, Gino and Fred's road trips. They were in France, Italy and Scotland. A new series started last week in Mexico and they're in America tonight. Do you know something? It's a scream. It's one of the best shows I've seen. I actually think uh, they think they're one of the motoring shows. <laughs> no, they're not really. It's speed and food, we'll say. Yeah, Gordon, Gino and Fred's American Road Trip. Nine o'clock tonight, Virgin One. I highly recommend it. Now, on late lunch here on LMFM Radio, we're marking the centenary of 1921, a most historic year in the context of Ireland, North and South. And we bring you part two today, and we're going to focus on a bloody month that February 1921 was. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined again by historian Sean Collins. Hello, Sean. Good afternoon, Jerry. Thanks for joining me again. Would you put that in context? When I say it was a most bloody month, why is, why is that? What's the reason behind that it's regarded as that? Well, you can, re- you can appreciate we were now at the height of our War of Independence. Um, the RIC had been supplemented by the Black and Tans, the Auxiliaries, the British Army. Um, conflict was the order of the day. Uh, February, a 28-day month, the shortest month on the calendar. Yet in February of 1921, 100 years ago, 176 people died as a result of the conflict. Uh, to uh, imagine that uh, in the first nine days, uh, 56 people uh, were, were killed, shot, uh, s- suffered violent deaths. Soldiers, RIC men, IRA volunteers were in full conflict all over the country. 
Um, the 4th of February, Sean McGowan and North Longford attacked two lorry loads of auxiliaries at Clan Finn. A landmine was exploded under the lorries, followed by a two-hour firefight. Four auxiliaries and a driver were killed and eight wounded. The IRA volunteers captured 18 rifles, 20 revolvers and a Lewis gun. On the 3rd of February at Limerick, the IRA ambush an RIC patrol at Drumkeen, killing 11 constables there. So that was the order of the day. That's what was happening. And the numbers, to me, are frightening, you know, to think um, all over the country these were the events. And in our own vicinity, um, Ash Wednesday, which fell exactly 100 years ago today on the 9th of February. I know this year it falls next week, but uh, all religious feasts are movable months. So uh, on the 9th of February, um, in Drumcondra, in Dublin, two Republicans, James Murphy and Patrick Kennedy, were arrested by auxiliaries. And two hours later, the Dublin Metropolitan Police found the two men shot in Drumcondra. At lunchtime on Ash Wednesday, uh, Robinstown in County Mead was surrounded by 11 lorries of blackened hands and auxiliaries raiding in the premises and houses of the area. So that was a normal day in the life of Ireland at the time. In the early hours of Ash Wednesday morning, two bodies were discovered on the uh, Mass Road. And uh, it's, it's a tragedy uh, that really stands out from that time uh, for our area. Mm. That was the Marsh Road, just to tell listeners, the Marsh Road in Drogheda. It's on the way from Drogheda Town along the River Boyne out towards Mornington. Uh, just below the viaduct, uh, the Belfast uh, Dublin railway line, there is a monument marked in the spot. But just to, to set it in context, um, on the 5th of February, Patrick Thornton, um, a man from Peter Street who walked at the local Boyne Cinema in Fair Street, was taken from the cinema by Black and Tans, uh, and his body was later discovered uh, barely alive in Bolton Square. Remarkably, the local paper didn't report on it. It just said that his body was found, but it made no mention of the attack. His older brother, Frank Taunton, always believed that he was murdered by the Black and Tans um, and wrote of this much later in his life. But it triggered a remarkable course of events. Patrick Taunton had fought in the 1916 Rising and was wounded, uh, and was only 15 years of age at the time. Uh, he had suffered ill health as a result of his wounds and settled back in Drada, where he got a job in the local Boyne Cinema, which was operated by Joseph Stanley, another man of local connection, and also um, a participant in the 1916 Rising. Uh, the body was discovered in the marketplace and brought home where uh, Taunton died. Uh, succumbed to his injuries. He was buried at St. Peter's in Drogheda on Monday with full military or, military honours. Uh, the local volunteers and Cumberland members marched in parade behind the funeral. Uh, there was a heavy presence of military, no it was noted by the papers, and it was also pointed out that Alderman Halpin's brother was arrested. It didn't say who arrested him, but the mayor uh, recorded that there were armed groups of men marching through, seen patrolling through the town on Tuesday. 
uh, they were a more sinister group than just plain uh, RIC or Black and Tans. Uh, Tom Halpin on Shrove Tuesday evening, uh, he was an alderman on Drogheda Corporation, um, carried on his life as normal as he possibly normally could. I suppose to just explain about Tom in particular, uh, he was a, a native of the town. His father was from Westmead, and he had come to work in Preston's distillery in Dyer Street as a master cooper in the late years of the 1800s. Uh, by 1903, he had set up a cooperage business himself, firstly at Leyland Place, then Stockwood Street, and later at Meat Market Lane. Indeed, as a child, I can remember the green sign of Halpins uh, still hanging in Meat Market Lane. Uh, Tom uh, was an active GAA man. He played both football and hauling. He had served as an altar boy in the Augustinians, where he was first noted as a fine singer. Um, he was a member of the National Foresters, and he's first mentioned in the newspapers in 1915 singing at a concert in the Whitwood Hall where it says that he would soon be heard in the metropolis. He was such a, a fine singer. Really? He was interned at Wandsworth Prison in 1916. Uh, at that time, he worked with the Chemical Manure Company. And in 1919, he married a local girl, Agnes Leach, who was from George Street. He was elected a Sinn Féin alderman of the Westgate Ward in 1920, where, while he was working at the time as an administrator at Kirkpatrick Mills. On Shrove Tuesday evening, he went to the pictures with his brother-in-laws, Hugh and Michael Leach, and they returned home uh, around about uh, half past ten. Um, he went to bed, and about shortly after midnight, the front door lock was blasted off the door. Uh, six armed men in great coats carrying revolvers came into the house. Three of them, uh, holding candles, rushed upstairs where Halpin was asleep. They asked Tom his name and arrested him. About ten remained outside. They did not give him time to get fully dressed, and before he was led away, he assured his wife Agnes Everton would be okay. They marched him down George Street and through the horse fair, as the papers referred to George's Square, the horse fair. Tom's hat and muffler were found there the next morning. As they passed Westgate RSC barracks, remarkably, there was no sentry on duty and there normally would have been. Uh, they brought him across West Street, and also there was no night guard standing at the Tonsil. Uh, and they met up a group coming down Peter Street. At the home of Sean Moran in Magdillen Street, um, armed men forced their way into the house. They asked Moran his name, and if he was a son of William Moran of Enniscorthy. Mrs. Moran heard one of the men remark that this is the chap who shot D.I. Wilson. She said they spoke with foreign accents, obviously English, and told her, you may see him again or you may not. They marched Moran across MacDillan Street and down Peter Street, linking with the group who had arrested Halpin. Both men were forced down Shop Street, across St. Mary's Bridge and down the South Quay. Again, at South Quay Barracks, there was no sentry or constable standing outside, which there normally would have been. Uh, the group continued down the Marsh Road. Um, the viaduct at this time was also guarded, and there was no guard on the viaduct. So everybody seemed to have disappeared that night, conveniently or otherwise. Yes. Um, just below the viaduct on waste ground, the two men were faced towards the River Boyne 
and the coroner's report said they were repeatedly shot in the back until they were dead. Locals reported hearing shots around about 2 a.m. At half past seven, a man named James McAvoy from Monington, on his way to Walk and Drada, came upon the scene. He immediately reported to Sergeant Friel at South Key Barracks. Agnes Halpin later recalled that at eight o'clock, she sent breakfast down to Westgate Barracks for Tom. Uh, she didn't know what had happened to him. Well, he was dead, yeah. Assumed he was mm. in Westgate. Mm. But sadly, he was long dead at that stage. So the two bodies were left there where that memorial is on the Marsh Road. And obviously, by what you say there, there was uh, complicit. It was a complicit thing. There was no guards in those key points and it just happened. And this mob took them away and murdered them in, in cold blood. Um, Sean, you know, when when something like this happens, uh, I know uh, John Moran uh, was taken back to Wexford to be laid to rest and there were huge restrictions, I know, round his funeral in Wexford. It was like today where you could only have six people, but for a different reason. But for Halpin, wasn't there a huge uh, interment here in, in Drogheda? Yes, there was, there was a massive turnout. They were both... Uh the requiem mass was held for both men at St. Peter's in Westreet, and upwards of three to 4,000 people attended. Um, I should point out that after the bodies were found uh, on the morning uh, of Ash Wednesday, the news spread into the town. Uh, the Mayor Philip Monaghan, Alderman Morphy, and Tom Halpin's father were some of the earliest people on the scene. Uh, Tom's father recited a decade of the rosary uh, in memory of his son. Uh, the bodies were taken to Millmount Barracks and on Thursday morning, uh, a public or a, an inquiry was held from which the public were excluded. The findings of the inquiry were that they were shot by persons unknown. So that was the answer mm. from the authorities. Yeah. Alpen and Moran's bodies were released on Thursday afternoon and they were brought to St. Peter's. Both coffins were draped in tricolours and along the route, hundreds knelt and recited the rosary. The coffins were placed side by side at the high altar in St. Peter's with members of the Irish Volunteers and common among forming the Guard of Honour. Uh, following the high mass on Friday morning, Moran's coffin was brought to Drogheda Railway Station and home to Enniscorthy via Dublin. Thousands of townspeople followed the hearse and then returned to St. Peter's at 2 p.m. for Halpin's funeral. His coffin was carried from Westreach to St. Peter's, or the new cemetery, as they called it at that time, on the shoulders of his comrades, draped in the flags the newspaper said, in which he lived and died in defence of. All business in the town was suspended, and while the military uh, followed the cortege and lorries, there were no incidents. Yeah, there were too many, like when you think of the crowds that were there. And of course, uh, today, uh, they're still remembered in Drogheda, Moran's Terrace, Halpin's Terrace. Uh, they give their names to those streets in the town as well, and they're never forgotten. The memorial is there, I pass it regular, and there's a ceremony there each year to remember. Look, Sean, just before we finish, you want to come back, I want you to come back uh, to Halpin, because you mentioned there about his singing prowess. Yeah, Halpin was a very fine singer and uh, I've been researching this event and and Halpin's life for many years and I've come across all sorts of kind of little stories and one I heard which I thought was very nice and I I hope you have a song lined up. Um, 
there was a man lived in uh, Halpin Terrace, a man called Johnny Rooney. And in his youth, uh, Halpin had been his pal. They were very close friends. And for the rest of uh, Mr. Rooney's life, I, I remember him well. I, I lived in Halpin Terrace myself. Uh, I am told that at family gatherings, uh, when they would have a party uh, or a get-together or a bit of a family sing-song, his son-in-law, Dick Duff, uh, who's also in heaven at this stage, Dick told me that Mr. Um, Rooney would always say, I'd sing Tom Halpin's song. And he'd sing the Valley of Slevenamon. Ah, Sean, would we let you down? Never, never, never. Yes, we have it lined up and we remember John Morn and Thomas Halpin on Late Lunch today. Sean, thank you so much. Thank you, Jerry. Take care. Ah, yes, Sleeve Naman. We remember John Morn and Thomas Halpin especially. That was his party piece who were murdered a hundred years ago today in that awful time in 1921. You're with Late Lunch on LMFM Radio this Tuesday afternoon. Still to come, we'll be talking to Dr Ian Cunahan about vaccinations. That coming up after 2.30. Stay with us. We have listeners all over the world. I know as I speak to you today, they're waking up in the United States and the East Coast and we have expats over there who listen to us regularly. Uh, Nigel McKenna is one of them. I'm sure he's probably tuned in today. He was telling me a great story over the weekend, actually. He was messaging me. I must give him a shout about it. He said where he lives is a little bit off the beaten track. And the other night there was a good fall of snow where they would need slow snow ploughs. Not like the millimetre of snow we've had here and the panic that would probably ensue. Anyway, uh, they were sort of snowed in, but in the middle of the night he heard... ..on his front door. This is no joke. He was telling me he heard on his front door and his wife heard it as well. I'm not sure whether it was once or twice... And he went down and had a look. There was nobody around. And the next day, there was no snowfall. There had been a good fall, heavy fall of snow. There were no footprints in the snow. Think about it. Who or what was it? Do you ever have anything like that weird happen to you in your life? You know, that something you can't explain. Well, he can't explain it. He was telling me, I just can't explain it, Jerry. But I heard it. As clear as that, on the door. Who was it? There you go. I'm trying to spook you around. Think, sleep well tonight. Don't, don't, don't be thinking about anything like that. But I wonder if anyone ever have an experience like that that you couldn't explain. Something like that that goes boomp in the middle of the night. If you have or you care to tell us, don't forget, we love to hear from you. You can email me at any stage. Latelunch at lmfm.ie is the email address or the usual numbers to get in touch with us uh, directly today. 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text. What about that? story that our Louise has today as well. Um, and we know him well. He's a good friend of ours on the show. Alan, uh, yes, the uh, Mead Litter Warden, uh, he uh, was uh, doing his work, as he is. He's very, very dedicated, Alan Nolan. And uh, in Gorman's town, he came across, you see, it's just not rabbits with fur that you find in the Irish countryside. They have opposition now. Yes, he found some sex toys. Oh. Mm, dumped in Gorman's Town. But it's not unusual because last year in Baymore in County Mead, well, that's just on the south side of Drogheda, he found 40 sex toys of all descriptions dumped in the ditch. And they're not reusable. Why would you be dumping? <laughs> 
maybe they're not reusable. I don't I don't know anything about them. I'd get a fright myself. Are they recyclable? Or could you give them to a charity shop? You know, you couldn't give them. Sorry, I didn't mean to say that. No, you couldn't give them to anybody. There you go. Anyway, it's uh, it's fruity in the in in the highways and byways of me that the minute you'd never know what you'd come across. Uh, Alan, you're a good man. You really are. He does a wonderful job, as do all his ilk in Louth and Mead, out trying to keep uh, the place tidy and uh, rubbish free. But there you have it, people. Maybe they just got fed up with them, the disposable, and they sent in another order for more or something like that. Whatever tickles your fancy, good luck to you anyway. But there you go. Found in the ditches of Baymore and Gormanston in the holy God Royal County of Mead. Toys like that. Toys are us. Do you remember them? I don't know whether they're still going. Are they toys are us or did they go out of business? Some of them went to... It's not that type of toy that we're talking about. It's real toys that you enjoy. Anyway, you're with Late Lunch on LMFM Radio this Tuesday afternoon. Still to come on the show. Yes, I'll be bringing you more of the Dusty Springfield story. And I have a great song to play for you today. Did you know that it's Internet Safety Day or Safer Internet Day? Only one man to talk to. Our tech expert, Declan Bailey. And he has some wonderful advice. Got another of them bloody things myself the other day. Them scams from Allied Irish Bank. And I said to you before, I'm not even a customer, but they're mad to get at me, so they are. Anyway, uh, Declan's going to be talking to us about this after three and how you can make sure you're shopping from a genuine sort you don't get taken in by these scams and more besides and next on the show after a break in Community Diary I'm going to say hello again to Dr Ian Cunahan I met him last March as the pandemic began to take hold here in Ireland down in the Lady of Lourdes Hospital and he's joining us today as part of our Keeping Well in the Community series and we're going to be talking about the vaccination rollout. Stay with us on late lunch. Yes, Jerry, that's not unusual. My mother told me about three knocks on the door and nobody being there. It happened to people she knew. And uh, there's just a message in from a listener. I was telling the story about Nigel a moment ago. Now, we uh, head to uh, one of our regular features at this time, Keeping Well in Your Community. It's part four. It's brought to you by Louth and Meath County Councils. And we've been talking to a number of people over the weeks uh, about aspects of the lockdown and the pandemic. And I'm delighted to say today, joining me on the show is Dr Ian Cunahan. He's Consultant Respiratory Physician at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital. Ian, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jerry. Thanks for uh, asking us to join you. Not at all. Ian, I was uh, talking to Professor Paul Moyne earlier on the start of the show. He joins us each Tuesday just on the latest uh, with the pandemic. And I was saying to him, God, I remember the day. It was, I think, the 16th of March. I went to the hospital and met yourself and some of your colleagues when this was just emerging in Ireland. And I'll always remember, and I don't know if it was you or one of the other guys said to me, I asked you, you know, how bad could this get? And uh, the reply was, this is unprecedented. And really, those were prophetic words, Ian. I think absolutely. I think it's borne out a lot worse than uh, I or others probably chatting to you that day expected and gone on, certainly for a lot longer than we had hoped at that time. Um, And I guess uh, we're hoping that 2021 uh, will allow us to, to get back to some degree of normality, but albeit it's going to be later in the year after we've reduced transmission in terms of the current uh, measures. Ian, uh, Ian, just to come, come to a point here, sorry for cutting across, but just something to say. You know, you still have the naysayers who say, look, at this is all blown out of proportion, it's not real, it's a hoax, this type of thing. You're on the front line down there with your teams, wonderful, wonderful people. And, you know, 
you've gone to the brink, haven't you? This has almost been a case of turning people away. Well, I think I think we've been very busy and we've had a huge amount of work to do over the last year. But the striking thing when you're listening to the, the, what you're talking about, naysayers or people who um, are focused on, on reopening um, the country as quickly as possible is is really the really sad stories in terms of the people that we meet who are the patients in the hospital, what's happening to them or, or their families. Um, uh, and that, I think puts things into a whole new perspective. Um, and I don't hear people who've had, who've been affected uh, by this disease uh, calling for uh, the country to be reopened uh, quicker than uh, Dr. Holohan uh, recommends. Mm, sad to think that people don't waken up to this. Some people, until it dawns or darkens your doorstep, but when it does, you really do. But the majority, I'm glad to say, of people, Ian, are doing the best they can and adhering uh, by what they're being asked to do and the tough restrictions. And before I move on, may I say, and would you express this to your colleagues there, all of the frontline people, all the people who make the hospital tick every day from top to bottom, we are so grateful, Ian, and we thank you all from our hearts. I will do, of course. And, and likewise, we're very grateful for all the, like you say, vast majority of people who have uh, got, had a, ter- a terrible year in terms of enduring the, uh, the, the, some of the loneliness and inability to, to do what we normally do in our day-to-day lives and, and the lack of social activity that we've had over the last year, because it is a sacrifice. Yes, it is. And and uh, it's fantastic that you recognise that as well. So look, at uh, it's been tough. It's been uh, uh, on the brink at times there. But here you are and we're moving on into this uh, year with great hope in our hearts. You, you're primarily with me today to talk about the vaccination rollout. And just to get this straight, you know, again, you have the naysayers, the anti-vaxxers as well vaccinations, I've said this many times, but you're way more qualified than me to tell people uh, about this. So vaccinations have been the saviour of millions around the world. Absolutely. I think uh, and vaccinations are, are, are uh, you know, a, a, tre- a medicine that have led to the eradication of diseases um, in, in the world, such as you know, smallpox um, and polio. So it's really important to to take some hope from that and the fact that we have vaccines now that are really much more effective than we uh, even hoped for uh, when people started trying to create a vaccine uh, around this time last year. Now, the rollout, I I get a sense that it certainly is ramping up. Uh, People are being recruited in to distribute the vaccine in the community, former uh, healthcare employees. We see specialist centres being built, doctors, uh, we're talking about pharmacies, perhaps even dentists being involved. Can you give us a sense, like from the front line there, that this really is moving forward? Well, I think that one of the things that um, having experience, you know, we've we're, we vaccinated, I think, about half of our staff up until last week, and we're hoping that our, as in the, the frontline clinical staff, and we're hoping that to, to begin vaccinating anyone who hasn't been vaccinated um, either by the end of this week or the end of next week to, to have completed them. But what's really nice to see is the, the enthusiasm and, I guess, the smiles on people's faces when they, you know, are queuing up for, for a vaccination. Um, I think this this is likely going to be the thing that is 
uh, going to pre- most likely to prevent people uh, getting uh, coronavirus, and it's going to be much more effective the more people who um, receive the vaccine. So I think there's obviously been a lot of focus in the media around uh, perceived problems with the rollout of the vaccine, but I think the real difficulty has been the country managing to get enough doses uh, in into the country. And I think there's a lot of really enthusiastic people uh, available, including the people you've alluded to, particularly people who usually give the flu vaccine, which are our GPs um, and their practice nurses. And you'll be aware they, you know, every year manage to vaccinate a large proportion of the population with the with the flu vaccine. And I don't think that there's going to be any difficulty in them vaccinating the population during the year once we can get a hold of uh, enough vaccinations. Yes. So the uh, the logistics are in place. People are, are are getting ready to go. Once we get the supplies, then it will roll out much faster. You know, if people have concern, like there's so much comes at you every day, as you say, from media, news, radio, television, but especially, you know, on uh, on the Internet, in the online world, all these stories, etc. Look, I get the flu jab every year and at times I might the next day have a little bit of feel a little warm or maybe a little slightly out of sorts, but not much. You know what I mean? What about the this vaccination? Are you hearing many people with side effects? There's not... Um a huge number, there's not really a huge number of side effects with the vaccine other than typical side effects that people get following all vaccinations. So that can be some, uh, a little bit of discomfort or swelling or redness around the site of the vaccination. And that's by far the most common um, side effect that we're aware of. The other thing that people do report is that they do feel a bit fluey um, in the, the 24 hours after, after the vaccine. And certainly some people will uh, have uh, a, high, a high temperature um, or feel unwell in that 24 to 36 hour period after the, the vaccine, um, which is a little bit more common when people are getting the second dose. You mentioned that, you know, your own staff there, that will be completed. Very important, you know, frontline uh, health uh, care staff. Uh, we, we know about the nursing homes. And then we have the programme from 1 down to 15 that's been published where, you know, you'll get your vaccination in priority from 1 down. For, for the general population, people listening today, uh, how will you know when it's your turn? What way is that process going to work? Will you be contacted? Well, it's going to... The expectation is going to run uh, out initially through the GP practices. Mm. So I think uh, any GP practice that has more than 200 patients over the age of 70 are going to be uh, allowed to to vaccinate within their practice. And I think that we'll find that that's actually most GP practices. Yes. Um, And so as far as I'm aware, the GPs uh, are are gathering together the the patients that are in the initial category. So I think the over 85s are going to get vaccinated before the... Uh, 80 to 85 and so they'll know how many patients they have in those categories so uh, they'll be getting in touch with them uh, to give them appointments mm-hmm. once they have access to vac- the vaccine and they have um, a, a, a protocol in, in place for um, gi- giving the vaccination uh, within their practice and I expect that to happen within the next fortnight. Okay, so that's going to be as quick as that and as regards the vaccines you know we hear about the different ones Will, will anyone have an option or will you just get what, you know what I mean, what, what is there at the time? I think as a number of people have said, um, 
already in, in the last week is that the best vaccine to get is, is the one that you're offered first because the importance is really about reducing your risk of getting COVID. Uh, and the way you'll do that is by getting immunity to this as soon as possible. So at the moment, while we await any further uh, data on the vaccine, that uh, the, the Oxford vaccine or the one produced by AstraZeneca, it, it's not being offered to people over the age of 70. Um, so that, that, that may change over time as more data uh, comes out from clinical trials. But at the moment, uh, we're prioritising our supply for the other two vaccines, the, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, um, for patients over the age of 70. So whatever's there so on the day... Likely, yeah, whatever's, whatever's there, is there on, yeah. on the day is the one you should get. Yeah. Um, that's it. You won't be you you won't be offered one that is felt to be less effective for. Of course, of course you won't. Uh, the medical people are on our sides. Always remember that, folks. Some people don't seem to get that. Still, um, uh, what about somebody who may have been? You know, I look at the moment. What nearly a quarter of a million have been vaccinated. Nearly eighty thousand have got their second shots already. You know, with the variants and that, if you got an early jab, might you need something else down the road, or is that just preempting something that will? naturally come into focus? I think it's like you say, I think that will naturally come into focus as as we learn more about the variants and we learn more about the vaccine. Um, at the moment, the vaccines that we have have been demonstrated to be very effective against the UK variant, which is probably the predominant strain in the country now. So I think that's very encouraging. So if you uh, are exposed to COVID over the next three months, it's likely to be one of the the either the wild type, which is the original one, or the uh, UK variant, which um, the, the this vaccine these vaccines are very effective against both of those. A question there in just for you uh, to say my daughter is a preschool teacher and she's minding 22 children every day. Long day, uh, Jerry. Uh, surely she should be a priority. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it may be that the. The priority groupings may change. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, I can't say that. Yes. Um, did, I mean, my experience is based in, in the hospital and dealing with the patients who are incredible, you know, have become very sick, required hospitalization or intensive care unit care. And I think that the government has and the HSE have targeted the groups that are the people that are coming into hospital. And that's. Uh, due to a combination of either their risks in terms of their age um, or medical uh, comorbidities um, or related to the exposure that they actually have. Mm. So um, I, I I certainly have, would have trust in the, the immunisation uh, committee and, and the, the HSE who are yes. uh, making the, the groupings. Yes, they'll uh, make the maybe call. It, maybe, it'll, maybe it'll change, but um, I, I think... While people may have, you know, because they're essential healthcare workers, or not essential healthcare workers, but essential workers or working in contact with people, they yep. may, may have more exposure to people. It doesn't mean they're at more risk of hospitalisation mm. necessarily or, or yes. severely ill. 
Yes, but it's been quite clear to you. And I know this has touched all ages, we we must say that, but predominantly it's been in the in the senior age category and, and that's the, the, the push and the thrust at the moment to get healthcare workers, those in long-term care, etc., and of an age vaccinated. Do you believe just from, you know, your your own experience and what you're seeing and what you hope for, that when that happens, you know, when that is complete... Surely then we will be able to take a significant step forward. I think so. I mean, I think if people, but but the vaccines, while they don't all have perfect, um, you know, 100% efficacy, what they have been uh, excellent at is preventing severe disease and preventing deaths from from COVID. So if people are not requiring hospitalisation and people are not requiring ICU care or dying of this, disease and it goes to become something and illness that people get similar to a, a common cold well i think we can go back to uh, you know some degree of normality i hope in that stage otherwise uh, you know this can only go on for yes for a certain period of time we can't live like this forever no 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 and and uh, you know that is uh, and and the panacea and the 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 route to this is vaccination you're here today yeah. to encourage people get the vaccine in Get the vaccine. I think uh, people, and I know people are looking forward to when they're being, will be offered the vaccine. And I just, I would encourage everyone to take up that offer when it arrives. Ian, you're uh, very good. And again, thank you so much to you and everybody on the front line. And it really is appreciated uh, by the people who are listening to you today and all those that you've helped recover and care for during this uh, unprecedented time. Thank you very much for joining me on the show. Thank you, Jerry. Take care now. That's Dr. Ian Cunahan there, consultant, respiratory physician at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda. And I will mention to you that tonight, Paul Maguire, formerly of LMFM Radio, head of RTE Investigates, brings you an insight into the third wave. Yes, this time they're in Tala Hospital. That's on RTE tonight after the main evening news. And one worth looking at if you ever had any doubts that this isn't real and really, really dangerous. Jerry, just to let you know, my daughter got the second Pfizer vaccine. She wasn't sick at all. Only a slight bump uh, on her armpit. That was really all, but she's fine, Jerry, and delighted she's got it. Thank you indeed. That comes in from a listener uh, this afternoon. Jerry, in County Mead years ago, did you know this? There were home parties selling those personal toys along the same lines as Tupperware parties. Oh, Anne, really? Imagine thinking you were going to a Tupperware party (laughs) and you arrived (laughs) at a sex toy party. I'd rather... rather, That comes in from Anne. Is that Anne Summer? (laughs) In touch with us today. (laughs) I'd far rather the Tupperware. It'd do far more for me. Me Love me grub. That other stuff. You can shove it. Boom, boom. Oh, they're flying today. They really are, are flying. <laughs> Sorry, an unfortunate use of a phrase there, but there you have it. Uh, three knocks came to my door at 12 o'clock one night. I had the baton ready to attack. Luckily, the man at the door said, whoa, hold on. I, I'm in here. I think it's, that's your cat that was knocked down on the road and it's been taken to a vet's in Navin. 
And you know what? It was my cat, says uh, the listener, Jerry. And would you believe the cat lived for 10 years after being knocked down on the road. Thank God nothing untoward happened to that man. I was only protecting myself. Um, but uh, anyway, Jerry, just said I'd let you know. But the knocks on the door, love the show. Thanks a million for letting us know. And um, yes, there's another one there asking me, what's that show you mentioned tonight? Yes, I will tell you again. The show I mentioned is Gordon, Gino and Fred. You know the three of them, Gordon Ramsay, Gino DiCaprio and... Um, uh, Gino, is it Gino? It's not Gino. The what's his name? G- Gino the Campo. Yeah, Gino, not Leonardo the Caprio. Gino the Campo. I'm mixing them up. Yeah, Gino the Campo and Fred Sintrix, I think is his name. Yeah, he's the guy on first dates. They're traveling. Well, they travel to their own countries first. I mentioned that. Now they're in America tonight. And you know what? It is. It's like Top Gear, but it's Top Gear with the three boys sort of it's a great show honestly I, 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 it's not a show I, I would have picked up on but I started watching it and I got hooked on it and you will enjoy it that's on Virgin tonight but I do mention as well uh, Paul Maguire's show once more about Tala Hospital 9.30 on RTE1 this evening still to come on late lunch yes it is safety on uh, the uh, World Wide Web Internet Day Declan Bailey's with us we'll hear the uh, continuation of the Dusty Springfield story but after Keith Barry last Friday She'll go back to Madonna again. Haven't heard her in a while. It's Papa, don't preach. Oh, I'll remember Madonna forever after Keith last Friday, that's for sure. Here's Madge herself. Looking great, isn't she? She's pushing on too. She'll need the jab shortly. I have to be honest with you, I've never had much time for Mike Dean, the referee. He was real homer, I I have to say, especially when Ferguson was in charge of United. He gave everything to Man United. He did. I've been at the games. I've been at Arsenal, Man United. And Dean, oh, he was on the best of terms with Ferguson. But I'll tell you this, no man, and it's a tough job refereeing, deserves death threats because of decisions he made in a football match. This brings the whole issue of, uh, you know, racism online, abuse, all that whole area into focus. It's time to police it. We police the real world. We just have to up the resources in policing that aspect of life now. And really, there's only way. There's only one way. Throw the book at people. Find them. Jail them. Simple as. Identify them. That's why last week that young fella down in Cork, the judge let him off with a reprimand. Vile stuff he fired at Ian Wright. He should have had to do at least community service and a lot of it for his crime. I just couldn't understand that, to be honest with you. Anyway, just a comment listening to that to Michael there on the sports news. And and staying with sport, don't forget this Saturday we've live commentary on four Premier League matches on the LMFM app uh, and uh, or you can listen uh, on the uh, Listen tab on the LMFM website. We've Leicester Liverpool at half 12 and uh, in between another couple of games and then Man City Spurs uh, later in the evening at half 5 and you can get closer to the action with Premier League Live. Remember this, with Now TV they stream all the action from Sky Sports on the Now TV Sky Sports Pass so no excuse for not uh, being in touch with the uh, Premier League. Now, the birthday request there mentioned to mention today Anna Devaney is 90 years young today. She's in Heatherfield Nursing Home and all your friends, Anna, in the Dunshockland Friday Club. Great people want to wish you the happiest of birthdays today and they say they have great memories of happy times which, please God, will come again for everybody. But happy birthday, Anna. Great achievement, 90 years today. Now, my Artist of the Week featured this week is Dusty Springfield and I mentioned yesterday 
that Dusty turned her attentions to the United States because she felt her career in the UK was floundering a little as the 60s rolled on. So she signed with Atlantic Records in the USA the label of her idol, Aretha Franklin. She recorded her fifth album with them called Dusty in Memphis in 1968 and it was released in the following year. It was really well received by the critics. But its chart success really didn't match uh, what the critics had to say until the lead song, Son of a Preacher Man, which subsequently became even more popular as time went on and the years went by. In fact, Son of a Preacher Man, it was a major hit again in 1994 when it featured in the brilliant movie Pub Fiction. And yes, by the start of the 70s, Dusty Springfield was a major international star. Well, we'll go back to that album from Memphis and let's hear it. Son of a Preacher Man. Ah, Dusty. At her very best. Son of a Preacher Man. From Dusty in Vegas, the uh, album. Brilliant, simply brilliant. She was such a talent. What a voice. And her story continues with me on Late Lunch tomorrow afternoon. And I'll spin another Dusty song just for you. She's fantastic. She really is. Now, did you know that today is Safer Internet Day? And I mentioned early on in the show, she received another text the other day from Allied Irish Bank. Ma, yeah, to do this, that and the other. I'm not even a customer of the Blimmin Bank. Anyway, Declan Bailey knows all about IT and he's a regular expert on late lunch and he's joining us next. Declan Bailey from Business Tech Help is on the line on Safer Internet Day. Hello again, Declan. Hi, Jerry. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Well, look, Declan, I was mentioning there, I'm sure you're familiar with this to start. These um, texts or emails I've been getting from Allied Irish Bank. And I'll tell you one thing, you could be duped. But the only thing is, Declan, I'm not a customer. Have you, have you, are you familiar with this? Yes, that's the thing, isn't it? You're not a customer because I had a client myself last week who sent me on an email he got from AIB and he, like the header that he put in, is this a scam? And the first thing when I rang him, I said, "Are you actually with AIB?" And he said, "No, I'm a Bank of Ireland." And I said, "Well, sure. What do you think?" Like he said, "But look, it's so it's so real." I said, "Yeah, but you're not with the bank." So it is a kind of a thing that you can get dragged in very easily, and somebody who's not, you know, clued in might all they want you to do is click on something and give your personal information, regardless of what bank you're with. Once they have your personal information, your date of birth, different things that they need about you, then they can access other things. It's just a fishing expedition. Yes, so don't bite, pass on it, don't get involved, don't get into any uh, communication with them whatsoever. That's the message today. Now, what do you mean by, I was reading, and and you're, you're very good on this, but what do you mean by keeping personal information professional and limited? Yeah, so you have to think that at the end of the day, let's say you're sitting at home tonight and somebody knocks your front door and they say, how are you doing? I'm just looking for your, your name, your date of birth. Well, straight away, the minute he says you're looking for your name, you know, go away. You close the door on his face. You wouldn't give it. But yet you go onto a website, you sign up for something and you give all that information. So you have to think straight away that if I'm giving out all this information, who am I actually giving it to? Is this a recognised site? You know, you have to guarantee the safety of the information you're giving out. So again, I think a lot of people that 
think they're going to get around something is by lying about their age. So they put in a strange date of birth. It always comes back to bite you in the end. Because if it is something genuine, that what date of birth did you use, you can't remember what date of birth you used, and then you're locked out of the account. Yes. So you have to be professional about your approach to giving information. Always think, if a guard asked you, you'd give them the information. If John in the street stopped you, you wouldn't give him the information. Yes. But yet you'll sit down in front of a computer and you'll pump all the information in. That's a very good analogy and a very good way of looking at it. Keeping your privacy settings on, talk to me about that. Yeah, so this is again very simple. On a phone, you just go into your privacy settings. Make sure they are all on for every app. It's very, by default, they should be on, but it's very simple. You know, see yourself when something flashes up on screen, all this, especially now that drives over your mat, is the allow cookies. So if something flashes up on screen, you just click OK, OK to get to the content. So really, if you don't read what you're clicking OK to, it can be easy to turn privacy settings off, turn notifications on instead of off. There's loads of different things. Location settings is another one as well that you shouldn't be really turning on. So once something pops up on the screen, you should read it and act on it, not just next, OK, to mm. get to the next part. So just always make sure you're aware of what you're doing. Okay, again, it's an awareness thing. Now, browsing, people love to browse. How do you ensure that, you know, that browsing is safe? Well, I suppose, again, because there is so much buying going on online now at the moment, and with the Brexit thing and the problem with deliveries from the UK, that there's a lot of people now inquiring about, well, I, I went onto a .ie site, I bought something, but the shipment is coming from the UK. How is that? I, I thought it was Ireland. I thought it was .ie. I thought it was Irish. Well, that doesn't really make any difference because at the end of the day, you can get a .ie by just registering a company name. You don't need anything else but just a registration, which costs €20 CRO form, and you have a .ie. But the main thing when you are buying something is to click on, which nobody really wants to do, the T's and C's, the delivery, the privacy, all those little tabs that every website should have down always kind of in the footer of the website and find out exactly what's going on, where the stuff is coming from, Because, again, the problem with the UK at the moment is the stuff lands in Ireland and you get hammered for customs charges. So you have to be careful of where you're actually buying the stuff from. Just because it's .ie doesn't mean it's coming from Ireland. Okay, that's a very interesting point. Now, we're out and about and we uh, know uh, go online in a public place using a public Wi-Fi connection. You'd be concerned about security. Yeah, well, the thing, I suppose, everybody is the same now. Uh, Yes say, and straight away, you'd be like, have you got Wi-Fi? What's the Wi-Fi password to get onto the Wi-Fi to stop using your 3 or 4G? But once you're on that network, so let's say for argument, you're in a cafe, and there's 20 or 30 people there, well, God be with the days, you're sitting there, you're logging onto the Wi-Fi belonging to the cafe, which is unprotected. So they've just bought Wi-Fi from wherever they buy them, and they're spreading that like hotspot. You're sitting there. Very easy for someone to sit in the cafe with a laptop, with a piece of software, and they can get into your either your laptop or your phone through that Wi-Fi channel. So you always have to be thinking, okay, right, get onto Wi-Fi. What am I going to do on that Wi-Fi? I'd certainly say, first thing you don't do is log into your bank account. Do never do that on a public Wi-Fi. In a hotel, a restaurant, a bar, any public Wi-Fi, do not log into your bank account. So you're saying stay on 3 or 4G. Operating on that is okay? Well, again, not necessarily because you can, like I say, go into a hotel and hook up to their Wi-Fi. Just be careful what you're doing on that Wi-Fi. 
don't go into your bank account. The other thing as well with 3 or 4G, because you are on the network's premium Wi-Fi, if you like, that's safe enough insofar as there's nobody hanging around. Like you'd be sitting in the car and you get onto your bank. That's fine. But a public Wi-Fi that the people that are in that area are using that same Wi-Fi? No. Mm. Okay, and that is a very important one, at least. Don't touch your bank details. Now, be careful what you download. You know, people are devils. I've had that myself at times. Of course. Uh, You know, just download. Why be careful? Why pay attention to this in particular? What's happening there that's a danger? Suppose that the thing that people would come across the most is if they went on to a, especially a British um, newspaper website, so let's say the Daily Mail, the Sun, the Star, those type of websites, on those you'll see all the ads along the left and the right-hand side, down the bottom. The ads just keep on popping up. And those ads are not necessarily for other articles in the newspaper, but for all, because the newspaper makes money out of those ads. So when you click onto one of those ads, Mm. you're on your own. You don't know where it's going to bring you. You're on your own. But sometimes just because everybody is being tracked online, you know yourself, people are saying all the time now, I started talking about holidays to uh, France and all of a sudden on my Facebook feed, these French holidays are coming up. You know, how does that happen? But once you go on to Google and start searching something, all that is tracked. And it's tracked as well because they want to give you content that you're interested in. So if you're looking at something like that newspaper, they are dynamically generated ads. So the ads that you see mightn't be the ads I see. So something you're interested in fishing. So there could be a little fishing ad there on your screen where it wouldn't be on mine because it knows you're interested in fishing and there's a chance you'll click into that and be brought to wherever they want you to go to. Interesting, very interesting. It goes without saying a strong passwords, but just before we finish, talk to us again about HTTP. This is really important. Yeah, it's a very simple check you can do. Once you go onto a website, especially through a Chrome browser, you can see in the website address up the very top where there's a little symbol, like a little lock symbol. If you don't see that, you click into the address and you can actually read the full address. It'll say HTTP as opposed to HTTPS. The S will give the little lock symbol. You should nowadays get a non-secure beside the actual web address if it doesn't have S. If you're going to buy on that website, it's a non-secure website, don't give your credit card details. It's just too risky. So HTTPS is the key. That S must be there. If it's not there, Declan, avoid it. It's as simple as that. And uh, just quickly, in a word, restricting uh, internet safety for children, just a couple of points there. Yeah, again, I looked at a programme this morning on television and between 8 and 10-year-olds, the uptake on social media has doubled in the last six months. So they are signing up for Facebook, Instagram, all those social media accounts. You have to be, you have, you have to basically know what your child is doing. So on phones, you can lock phones down, but you need to actually look into how to do it, but you can actually do it because, you know, your eight or ten-year-old on social media these days, crazy. Okay, so you must must pay attention to that. There's more of them going online than ever. There are means and ways of doing it. And if you want to find out more, Declan's your man, info at businesstechhelp.net. That's info at businesstechhelp.net. And the number, it's a great one, I say it again, 087-123-6789. That's 087-123-6789. I'm going to make him an offer for that number someday. Declan, thank you so much for joining us as usual. Hey, Jerry. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Declan Bailey there, real good guy. If you take 
take his advice, you will be safe online. Tomorrow on the show, James Tallon from Martry Mill is joining us. Tony Conlon is test driving the new Opel Mocha for us. And Grania Connor, we're touching base where things are changing in Italy. For the better, I have to tell you. Eddie's coming next with the drive. Have a nice evening. Take care of yourselves and do come back for another late lunch with us tomorrow from half one. See you then. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Drogheda Dundalk and Cavan. Our service departments are open with all HSC and government guidelines in place to keep you and our staff safe. Sales are click and deliver only through our website, blackstonemotors.ie. Stay safe from Blackstone Motors. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do 
and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.